0: Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When in police the arrived, they found lockdown. the telephones and electricity lines. We have a
1: weird homicide.
0: scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder
1: keeping secrets can sometimes put people in danger. On November 11th, 1949, a woman was born who would do anything to become a star. A woman who had a lot of secrets tucked away in a little black book that, if made public, would change and possibly end the lives of many individuals. A fact that might just have made her a target of a very dangerous individual. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, Sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Krista Helm was born on November 11, 1949, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to a couple who, just before her third birthday, decided to go their separate ways. Her father remarried and had two more children, but her mother, unfortunately, sunk deep into alcoholism and depression that was only made worse by a string of deadbeat and violent partners men who allegedly took advantage of Krista and her sisters, while her mother stood idly by. When things became too much to bear, the three girls went to live with their father and his new family. It was while there that Krista decided to toe the line and push some of her boundaries. Loving being the center of attention, she was often spoken about and chastised for behavior that didn't align with the small-town Wisconsin lifestyle. Like when she, at 16 fell in love with a 26-year-old man, Gary Clements, and within weeks of knowing him, got pregnant and, under the pressure of her family, had a shotgun wedding. Giving birth to a baby girl just after her 17th birthday, things started to grow tense in her new marriage, and within weeks of Nicole's christening, Gary packed up and walked out on his family. Now on her own, Krista began working as a waitress at a local Italian restaurant where she met and befriended another young mother... Diana Mitchell. The two eventually got an apartment together and their daughters were both sent to live with their grandparents. According to Diane, Krista's love for attention never seemed to cease, and now single, she began seeing a revolving door of men who gave her exactly what she wanted. At some point during their friendship, Diane and Krista's boss at the restaurant invited them to go to a Playboy club with him in Lake Geneva. Agreeing, Krista met actor and singer James Darren and completely inspired by him and his lifestyle, decided that her new dream in life was to become a big star. She was quickly hired as a bunny, but never ended up working as one, and leaving their daughters behind, Krista and Diane packed up and moved out to New York City to make it big. Getting a job as a waitress, Krista soon met football player Ray Abruzis and became his new, albeit short-lived, live-in lover, while booking modeling jobs in hopes of getting discovered. That day came when she met costume designer, Lenny Barron, who introduced his new friend to all of the New York elites. The small-town Wisconsin girl was now going to glitzy big city parties filled with famous people that she was desperate to impress. And impress them she did. Through her partying, Krista was able to meet Broadway producer Stuart Duncan, heir to the Worcestershire sauce Fortune who was, at that time, looking to make the transition from stage to screen. Taking along his new buddy, Krista, she was given her first role as a star of his 1974 film, Let's Go for Broke, as well as giving her a stock in his well-known musical, Godspell. When the film was finished, Krista decided to move to Hollywood, where she hoped to further her career— and for the next few years, submitted photos and stories about herself to gossip columns as a way to make sure that her name was known by everyone. Allegedly linking herself to men like Mick Jagger, Warren Beatty, and Jack Nicholson, she inserted herself straight into the inner circle, and soon met financier Bernard Kornfeld and moved into his 39-room mansion. Known as the premier party destination, Krista seemed to have everything she wanted right at her fingertips. And what she seemed to want most, maybe only second to a career as a famous starlet, was the adoration of powerful men. Later described by her daughter as a, quote, free agent who openly enjoyed sex, Krista liked to enjoy the company of men and even kept a diary of her many escapades with men of note and fame. In this little book, she allegedly wrote details like what she was wearing and even rated how much she liked or disliked their sexual encounter. There were even some reports that the pages contained details of threesomes and relations with other women. Taking the diary with her everywhere, these salacious pages, in the opinions of some, might just have been the thing that cost Krista Helm her life. With many friends telling her to hide or destroy the diary, There were whispers that, when ready, Krista planned on taking the contents and releasing a tell-all book. Others thought it was a means for blackmailing her way into Hollywood. Regardless of her intentions with the book, Krista continued her push for fame and appeared in small roles on a number of TV shows. Unfortunately, none seemed to push her to the next level, and searching for a new way to achieve fame, she decided that she was going to become the next big disco star. Signing with Casablanca Records, Krista and the producer who was brought in to work with her, DJ Frankie Crocker, did not get along. And with their relationship fizzling out, so did her chance at creating a big hit. Partying harder and getting mixed up in a crowd that she would later tell friends she was scared of, Krista soon started a relationship with one of her female backup singers, Patty Collins. Though this relationship seemed to be in secret, at least according to some sources, Krista continued to openly brag about the sex diary and all that it contained. More importantly, she was quite open about the fact that she always had it on her person and usually tucked it inside whatever purse she carried that night. On the night of February 11th, 1977, Krista Helm attended a party with her roommate, a woman named Stephanie Warsaw, out in West Hollywood. Taking Stephanie's car there, Krista at some point made a call to her agent, Sandy Smith, a man who she may or may not have been in a relationship with and tried to get him to come to the party. He refused and Krista decided to leave and head over to his house. Stephanie would later claim that it seemed like something spooked Krista that night. And when she saw her approach with a quote, funny, cloudy look on her face, she asked her what was wrong and was told that it was nothing. About to spend the weekend at the beach with her boyfriend, Stephanie handed over the keys and left the party. It's unknown exactly when Krista left and if she made any stops along the way. But what we do know is that in the early morning hours of February 12, 1977, Krista Helm, having parked in front of a neighbor's house near Sandy's home, was attacked with a large butcher-style knife and a blunt object and was found partially tucked under the parked car belonging to his live-in girlfriend. From the looks of things, Krista, who was trained in martial arts, fought like hell against her attacker or attackers. But in the end, she could not survive the more than 30 stab wounds peppering her breasts, back, and side. Left to bleed out, her hands covered in stab wounds, she was lying on her stomach in a pool of her blood. Missing from the scene was her purse meaning that the diary that everyone seemed to know about, the one that could completely destroy the lives of some, was nowhere to be found. It remains missing to this day. According to investigators at the scene, Krista's car was parked at a strange angle, and though some claim the photos of the scene show the opposite, they say the tires of the car appeared to be blown due to driving up on the curb at a high speed. Indicating that Krista was driving erratically that night, Many wondered if she was being followed by some unknown threat. Speaking with those living in the nearby houses, police soon learned that some heard what appeared to be, quote, two women and a man speaking loudly to one another that night, and, quote, vicious screams that sounded like a cat being skinned. In addition to the diary and purse being taken from the scene, officers never found the knife used in Krista's murder, and police... Noting the sheer force and violence of the attack, theorized that the person who wielded that weapon likely knew her and wanted her dead. It was a crime of passion. Unfortunately, there was no real evidence found at the scene other than the DNA taken from under her fingernails that, at the time, did not provide any hits. With very little to go off of, police went to Krista and Stephanie's apartment and spoke with her about the crime here is where the story starts to get a little strange. When speaking with the police, Stephanie told them that Krista called their agent and mutual friend, Sandy Smith, the night of the murder, and was trying to get him to come to the party. The problem was, when spoken to due to the close proximity to his home, Sandy told investigators that he was sound asleep when the attack occurred, and that he heard nothing, and that he had no idea Krista had been stabbed right in front of his house. But if that were true... How did he speak with Krista on the phone? And why were people seen going in and out of his house all night long? Including the person who, on his walk to Sandy's door, found the body at 1.30 a.m. Thurman Brooms, the man who found her, said he stood there and watched as Krista took her final breath. And when she did, he ran back to his car and drove to the nearest police station to report the discovery. On December 5th, 1979, Thurman himself, would be killed in a drug-related assassination. Now, pegging Sandy Smith as a potential liar, investigators started looking into Krista's personal and professional life and, pretty quickly, learned all of the salacious details of both. With too many leads and far too many loose ends, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Office passed the case off and moved on to the next crime, having never figured out who killed Krista Helm and why which of course means that many suspects have been publicly named over the last few decades. Let's start with the most obvious one, Sandy Smith. Considering Krista was attacked right outside his door and that he was caught lying to the police, it's not surprising that many point to him as the main suspect, especially considering the allegations that he had mob ties, was part of the Hollywood party scene, and was overall considered a shady character. Others, however, point to a man named Rudy Mozilla. According to sources, Rudy was a drug dealer who lived with Blair Aronson, the keyboardist working on Krista's disco album. She reportedly purchased cocaine from Rudy and the exchange got violent. He was also allegedly heard bragging about committing the murder, but for some reason was never looked at during the initial investigation. He was, however, looked into when the case was reopened in the mid-2000s, but by that point, he was already dead. From what I can tell, Rudy Mozella seems to be the number one pick for most when it comes to who killed Krista Helm. But unable to be interviewed and with no direct evidence pointing in his direction, it's unlikely he will ever be officially named as her killer. Especially considering there are still more potential suspects. Men like Tony Sirico, who played Polly Walnuts on The Sopranos. According to the reports, Stephanie said Tony showed up at their apartment shortly after the party to check on Krista's welfare. Instead, he walked in and stole some furs and personal documents. Among the items, Stephanie believes he took tape recordings Krista made about her sexual encounters. Tony was not interviewed back in 1977, but in 2006, when the case was reopened at the behest of Krista's daughter, he, after initially seeming cooperative and friendly, suddenly shifted and claimed that he didn't remember her and denied ever going into that apartment. His attorney stopped the interview before any further questioning could take place. The last suspect mentioned is an unknown sexual partner, meaning any of the high-powered individuals in that diary, not wanting the information leaked, could have chased Krista down that night and ended her life. Unfortunately, with no evidence, no leads, and rumor-clouding facts, it seems that Krista Helms' case might just remain a mystery. The last real substantial update came after the case was reopened in 2006 and that DNA evidence found under her fingernails was sent off for testing. The results came back and determined that the sample came from an unknown woman. Could it be from Patty Collins, a woman who, according to sources, has never been located? Or could it be from another woman whose names grace the pages of Krista's little black book? Hopefully, sometime soon, we will finally get those answers. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to A Terrible Thing Happened on November 12th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how much you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime-obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.